Today's show is brought to you by the Human Resource Executive Magazine's HR Technology Conference and Exposition, held October 1st to 4th at the Venetian in Las Vegas. Join me and thousands of your colleagues at the world's largest exhibition of HR technology. Act now using the code HREX and you can receive a $300 discount on your ticket. Thanks. We'll see you there. And by the way, don't miss the Women in Technology segment. Welcome to HR Executives Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumser, and today we're going to be talking with Andrew Merritt, who is the founder of Organization View. Organization View is one of the earliest European people analytics practices, and Andrew is I believe the global expert on how to use natural language processing to understand sentiment in large texts of survey data. Andrew, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Um, it's uh, it's a good Friday. I'm looking forward to a summer weekend. Cool. So, so, so I want to start with. I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself in a second. But, but, but you built a computer in the '70s. Yeah. Well, actually, I think it, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I built it with my father. Um, I, I think he was he was much more akin to this um, soldering iron than I was. I I, um, I very much came from a, a technology family, and in the seventies, if you wanted a home computer, you bought a kit and built it yourself. So that's how I got involved in in technology, like I suspect many many folks. So take a moment and introduce yourself. So as you said, I'm, I'm founder and CEO of Organization View. We were, we are one of Europe's first people analytics firms, founded in in 2010. Um, for the last few years, we've become a lot more focused and um, and dare I say niche and, and um, work mostly working with, with large corporate clients. Um, to help them understand their vast quantity of unstructured and mostly text data um, as a way of building that into their approaches of, of learning and improving their organizations. Uh, so, so what um, got you to, to that point? How did, you, how did you end up doing that? Yeah, so I, as, as, you, as you mentioned, um, I, I, I came very much from a technology background and um, as, well as, as well as learning to program in the 70s on a machine with probably about 3K. Um, you know, I spent, I used to go with my father to the data centers and, and um, also used to get lots of exposure to what was then, you know, sort of computers that most people didn't get to see, things like the Apple Lisa at home and stuff like that. Um, in the in the late 80s, certainly when I was in school, computing wasn't, wasn't seen as uh, a proper subject. It wasn't very academic, seen as academic, certainly by my teachers. So I went went off to read mathematics, swapping to economics when I wanted to do something more applied. Um, I spent most of the 1990s working in management consultancy. It was a lot of work around process reengineering, also. The firm that I was working in did a lot of work around uh, process simulation, um, and I was often working on the more OD parts of those big process changes. Um, I then went into industry in ten, and spent 10 years working within HR, but probably spending at least as much of my time in marketing. So I was typically running uh, 
global projects. They were typically involved in some technology. They were using data. Um, and a lot of the approaches that we got there were very much borrowed um, or stolen, whichever way you want to look at it, from, from what was happening in, in marketing departments. So uh, my first experience doing machine learning it, it was in 2004 working with a, a bank where we used, we used um, purchasing data on, on uh, employees' accounts um, to predict and to optimize the benefits package. Um, we, I spent you know, two years running a program around employee experience, working really, really closely with my, my colleagues in, in um, consumer experience. And then when I um, left corporate HR to, to found organization view, it was pretty much natural that we started, started with using uh, our experience or my experience in, in terms of applying marketing analytics into, into HR. Um, we've been working on that, as I said, for, te for 10 years. Um, the, you know, and, and have covered pretty much the transition of um, analytics from uh, you know, an interesting subject that nobody was really doing in 2010 to now when I suspect you know, the data I see suggests 70% of big firms are, are, doing, are doing this type of work. I think we've always been, as a firm, a bit more technology focused, a bit more advanced. So a lot of my peers came from a psychology background, and we very much came from a sort of a data science type of approach. Um, and that really drew um, our interest in text. Um, so when we were working with clients on building predictive models um, five, six years ago, we would typically find that we would get to a stage where the way of making improvements was not to improve the quality of the algorithms, but instead to improve the quality of the data. And that these machine learning models, or as they were often called at the time, data mining models, would be able to like, build some sort of probabilistic approach to saying what is going to happen to when and, and, um, uh, and to who, but it wouldn't be able to answer in itself why it was going to happen. And to do that, we needed to catch, uh, capture typically employee perception and, and increasingly much more qualitative data. Um, when I was working with executives, what I noticed was they were, they were disproportionately likely to make actions based on that qualitative data rather than the sort of, you know, reams of really high quality statistical analysis that we didn't. And um, while some of our clients, uh, you know, had the enthusiasm and approach to this, you know, one of our telecoms clients here in Switzerland, their chief executives to read every single answer of their employee survey. Um, we realized that for much larger firms and for most organizations, we need to find a, a technological way of scaling that. So we, about four or five years ago, we started focusing on text. And as you kindly said in the, in the approach, um, you know, we got to a very, very strong position there. Um, and that's about 90% of what we do these days. Wow. Wow. So, so NLP is the heart of the business, huh? Yeah, and NLP is the heart of the business. Um, it is, it's, an, it's something that a lot of clients, well, almost all of our clients have very large amounts of text. As you and I were discussing um, before we went on, on air, um, a lot of this is survey data. So increasingly, employees will be asked open text questions. As we go more towards 
shorter pulse surveys, the, the way, one of the key ways you counter the lack of richness in asking a small number of questions is by asking open text questions. So we're increasingly seeing uh, large volumes of text data there. But we can also look at other HR systems, um, performance reviews. We've done quite a lot of work understanding both objectives and also 360 reviews, um, even down to HR um, shared services centers and, and, and health desk systems, and trying to get much more granularity out of the information that's catching, capturing. Our expertise and, and NLPs are pretty, it's a series of very narrow fields when it's done best. Um, our particular expertise is understanding the answers given to a particular question at scale and across multiple languages, and uh, that requires a, a sort of fine-tuning of the general NLP techniques. So, so, so how does NLP work? I think, I think if you can explain that simply, it'll be a home run with the audience. So, so, so. Well, let's, let's, let me try. Let me try just that. So, um, text analytics or NLP used to be done by analyzing the words and the word frequencies in the text. And I think if you were probably to pick up any beginners textbook today, that's probably where you'd start. I mean, one of the outputs of that, of course, is, is a word cloud, which is, which is literally counting the most frequent uh, words and, and visualizing it in a certain technique. Um, most commer modern commercial uses of, of text today are, are not based around this approach, but used around a set of techniques called word embeddings. So these embeddings are, are numerical representations, effectively vectors of, of the text. Um, and you're changing words, which are you know, just millions of words, and especially when you think that a, a computer will see a misspelt word as a, a word in itself, um, into numbers, and numbers are inherently easier for computers to deal with than, 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 than these very large volumes of text. Um, the, the appraisal that they're built is by deep learning, which is why they've been popular over the last few years. Um, the, the way that deep learning works um, means that the, the numbers inherently learn a sort of semantic understanding of text. So if we look at the words for cat, it's reasonably close to the word for dog, for example. Um, in the first major paper on this, which came out of, out of a thing from Google, with an algorithm called word to fact the, the author showed that if you took the sort of the vector that represented the word king and you subtracted the word the vector for the man for man and added the vector for woman, you would get the computer would say, actually this the answer of that is is the vector for queen. And it's it's learned this semantic understanding of the text just by the way that the algorithms work. And this is this is deeply powerful and this enables us to do some really, really smart things with that. Um, in the last, especially 18 months, we've seen a very large number of improved algorithms for, for word embeddings, each of which is based on, on using larger um, data sets and more and more processing power. Um, for us and our application, um, we use these embeddings to spot patterns in text. So um, an, an approach that I like to, to suggest is that, you know, in my area, the Swiss provide maps to 1 to 10,000, so that means you can see every single building 
um, on the map of the dot or on the outline of the shape of the building. If you were to take away everything else, there are all these contour lines and pictures of woods and colours off the map and just have those dots and then try to identify which villages were there. That's effectively what we're trying to do with these embeddings. So we, we have all the phrases and we try to use the sort of density in the heat map to identify where we're talking about one topic or, or another one. Um, we're not really working at the word level, but instead using sort of the grammatical structure of the text to extract short phrases that provide the key information in the sentence. So we're simplifying the sentence, rephrasing it, both to increase the size of the data, but also to concentrate the meaning um, to something simpler. Um, and then we use that to, to identify the, the phrases. Um, so when gone. Well, well, keep going, keep going. I, I will, I, I will jump yeah, in when you're done. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so when most researchers out there, and certainly the big tech firms are, are, are doing this, they're using larger and larger data sets and more and more computing power to learn better generalizable models. Um, our approach is, is different. We've we've changed the algorithms and we use much smaller custom models based on very, very specific data. And again, it's about concentrating the information. If you've learned your uh, approach based on all of the information in Wikipedia, you've got things about you know, European battles, pop stars, all things that we're unlikely ever to see in, in the data. And you need very large data sets to, to learn everything. For us and our clients, you know, if we ask a question about customer satisfaction in, in the stores, we know that the answers are probably going to be about customer satisfaction. So, you know, it's not important to teach the, the model about the Battle of Trafalgar. You know, it's not going to see that sort of data. So we can't use concentrated approaches, and this enables us to build really super accurate models, but just for that one question. So, so one, of the, one of the things that I wonder a lot about about this technique is, it seems to me that you can do a great deal with what has been said. I wonder if you believe that you can get to what was meant. I think there's often a difference between what people say and what they mean. And, and if you were looking at the output of a large group of people, you'd be more interested in what they meant than what they said. Right, and and maybe you call that sentiment analysis, but I'd love I'd love to understand mm, how you see the difference between the data that you get and the underlying meaning of the data that you get. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. So, I don't think the, the problem is unique to text data captured in a survey or form. I think if you are having a conversation with somebody, especially conversation with somebody from a different culture where some of those inherent things that you, you expect um, aren't present, then you know, this is just a natural human part. Of course, it's a, it's a human part that computers are, that, that humans find reasonably easy, um, but computers find inherently difficult. And the way that we deal with that is that we keep a human in the loop. So we've developed an approach um, which in, in, in academia is called active learning where effectively our algorithms identify where they're not sure about the meaning and they pass those sentences to a human who 
can use that you know, human superpower of being able to spot something and immediately saying, yeah, that's about this, or no, it's about something completely different. Um, I think for us, the, the view that computers are able to, to take, you know, to look at these often ambiguous pieces of text and, um, and make a decision is, is really difficult. Now, you mentioned sentiment analysis, and, and you know, technically that's about understanding you know, the positive or the negative aspects of the text. And you know, inherently, we might think that's a relatively easy thing to do, but you know, put two humans to review a big bunch of text, and academic studies show they get that 70% of agreement at maximum. And that's about the level of performance that the computer does on, on sentiment. I wrote a, an article a few weeks ago um, about sentiment analysis, and I gave a few examples of the sort of real-life data that we have, we see issues with, right? So if, um, if an employee says on a survey, I used to have a really good manager, right? Uh, the typical sentiment analysis would say, yeah, that, that person has a really good manager, but actually, by them saying that they used to have a really good manager, they're implying that they no longer have a really good manager. And it's that sort of um, those sort of phrases in the text that you or I would understand that a computer really, really struggles with. Got it. Got it. So there was a there was a recent project we got on the phone to talk about the the, the MIT promoted. Um, analysis of glass door data um, that claim to be able to identify culture from reviews. So they took all of the glass door data and, and made some claims about culture. What do you think about that? I think there's a few different ways to look at it. So um, this is, they, they call this the culture 500. It was published in course two by um, MIT Snow Management Review and a team out of MIT and, and presumably working hand-in-hand hand with, the, with the Glassdoor data, uh, Glassdoor team because of the data um, they had. Um, I found this really interesting is we have lots of experience with the type of questions that Glassdoor ask. They're often used internally within organizations. And also we've, we've looked at other public uh, review data in the past. And the, because the research also in their documentation did a really good job of documenting their methodology, which has lots of similarities to the approach that we use. So um, I always like uh, researchers to say how you've done it rather than just saying we've got this amazing result. Um, what the team have done is identified expressions and information that they've then clustered into nine dimensions which they can score each firm against. Now, to some degree, this is similar to what we're doing. Um, we're identifying, we're looking at the data, we're identifying themes, um, and then because typically we'd identify maybe 100 themes on, on a question like the top comms question in Glassdoor, you then have to simplify it because no human can make sense and store 100 different themes in their head. Um, the data set they used, which was 1.2 million reviews, is a, is a decent size, but it's not enormous, right? So a lot of our clients have got, you know, would, would come to us with a data size of well over 100,000 reviews from one question, and that's one firm. They have 500 firms, and they have 1.2 million reviews. They said the average firm in the study had 2,000 reviews, but 
the way that these types of data is distributed means that some firms will have an awful lot of data, you know, 20, 30,000 reviews, and some might have tens or maybe 100. So um, when you're starting to get much smaller volumes of data, you then end up having lots more uncertainty because you, you haven't asked the employee or the, the worker, the ex-worker, how this person, how this firm rated in terms of innovation or performance of the other, the other schemes that they looked at. You've, you're looking at counts and pounds, as it was mentioned. Um, so I think it's, I think it's an interesting approach. It's certain, but it's certainly, you know, um, technically a, a good approach. Um, I'm, I'm sure we're going to now talk about whether this actually is culture and, and, and whether we can infer culture based on, on this type of data. Exactly. That's the, that's the next question. It seems like it seems nonsensical to me that you would go to a place like Glassdoor, which has some notable bias in the data set. So it's like, it's like looking into a mirror, but maybe a mirror that you'd find in a fun house and, yep. <laughs> and appraising, appraising yourself based on the fun house mirror and walking away saying, well, now I know who I am. Um, yeah. the, the, I, think it, it, I think that's true. Yeah, sorry. I, I think that's true. I think that's true. I mean, the glass door data is much, much higher quality than other review data on the web. There's vast amounts of information and research showing biases on, in terms of web research. And the Glassdoor team in the past have published data which shows, um, you know, that on a relative basis, you know, they perform better than an Amazon review. Certainly if you look at plotting out the, the scale recommendations, it's much more like you would expect to see in an employee survey um, than you would expect to see on an Amazon review, for example. So I think the, the data is, is not perfect, but it's better than many types of data. But fundamentally, they, the team only mentioned culture in terms of how, the, how they define the culture. And I'm, you know, I'm sure that several of our listeners know far more about culture than I do. However, I guess it's fair to say that there are many different uh, definitions of organizational culture, and there's no common shared view. And I don't actually think, if I, when I looked, did some desk research on the common models and the, the most popular ones, their model didn't seem to fit anyone totally. So it's as if they created a a definition of, of culture, probably partly based on the data that they found in, 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 in the um, in the Glassdoor data. So they've also um, they also claim to be able to identify the performance, the data in that performance link to to performance. And again, I think the evidence on culture and performance is inconclusive. Although I think, like engagement, we'd expect executives to believe there is a strong link. Um, my guess as an analyst is that a good culture is necessary but not sufficient to drive to drive performance. So, so, so we are we are um, zooming through our time together. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because because we were going to talk here deeper about the measurement of culture and what you can and can't measure, uh, but. But I, I'm, I'm going to skip to what I think is the, the fundamental question here, which is that the measurement of culture is going to increase, I believe. Um, and um, so, so I'm curious about how you see that unfolding, because, because what I'm seeing is that there are projects like this 
that actually seem to ignore all of the prior work on what culture is or isn't. And um, yeah. um, there's in in the states. I don't know if this is a global term yet, but there's there's a um, uh, an idea called Columbusing, and Columbusing is when you get to a brand new land and you declare that you've discovered it, even though there've been people living there for 500 years. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, I right. Know that. Um, so I, I see this a lot in, in data science and people analytics and, and, you know, you will know from the work research that you've been doing because there's a vast number of firms, especially young firms coming onto the market who potentially have found one interesting result and then try to, to generalize this into, into a product. I think fundamentally the issue that this work and many of the other similar works has is, is actually very similar to when we're doing sentence analysis. So um, we, uh, we're dealing with data that was captured for, for, one other, for another purpose and we're trying to infer, so we're trying to make um, a best guess estimate um, of culture or in sentiment analysis sentiment from data which was never captured for that purpose. Um, we can do that reasonably well. So the accuracy of sentiment analysis probably, as I said, around 67, 70%. Um, but it's never as good as asking a good questionnaire. So, you know, in, in um, if all you have is this found data, it's probably the best you can work with. But if you're an executive of a big firm I, and want to understand culture, I would thoroughly recommend you go to a cultural specialist or org psychologist and build something that's specifically designed for measuring culture um, that you can get. You'll get far more accurate data. We, we talk about our clients and engagement surveys. Don't try and infer engagement from the tech ask somebody their level of, uh, level of engagement. Um, so I think there's also a key that we see new data, and especially novel forms of data, as, as being new and shiny and, and, and potentially innovative and better. Um, but we as analysts always need to be thinking about, you know, what does data show? How is it captured? What are the biases that are inherent to this? All this sort of boring stuff, which unfortunately tempers down, you know, just how much you can squeeze out of out of some data. So, I think my recommendation on this this approach, you know, is if it's if all you can get is Glassdoor data, what the authors have done, you know, and and you agree in their definition of culture, what the authors have done. Is really good, right? So, but there's a there's a whole bunch of caveats here. If you're a job hunter and you haven't got the the ability to capture the data, better data, then then you should rely on this type of things. If you're a recruiter and executive, and want to develop a differentiated between, position between you and your talent competitors, where it's going to be harder to get good culture data off them, um, then it's probably a good start um, using somebody like us who can build a specific model for your sector or your, your firm, probably means we could outperform this type of model in a very short period of time. Um, I think there's a natural human tendencies to want these models to work. They can certainly contribute to our understanding, and, and data such as Glassdoor is certainly extremely valuable. However, we need to temper expectations for the constraints that are inherent in, in the way that the data is collected. 
Perfect. Thank you. Um, so, so it's been great having you to do this. We should do it again soon. There's so much more to talk about. Um, would you would you take a moment and reintroduce yourself and tell people how to get a hold of you? Yep. So I'm Andrew Maris. I'm the founder and CEO of Organization View, a text-focused people analytics firm based in Switzerland. Um, you can get hold of me obviously by LinkedIn and. Probably the easiest way is to go to organizationview.com or allworkometry.com, which talks about the the tech service, and um, the contact forms there will will go straight to me. I get to see every single one of them. Um, I'm always willing to uh, share knowledge about text analytics and and answer any questions that you have. And um, for, for large firms, um, we usually can can show them quite quickly what what we can do with their data in terms of pilots. We we like working a very agile way like that. Thanks. It was re- really great to talk with you this morning, Andrew. Thanks for making the time to do it. Um, you've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. We've been talking with Andrew Merritt, M A R R I T T, from Organization View, a Switzerland based company that specializes in sentiment analysis and text processing. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you back here next week. Bye bye now. <laughs>